0: It's my privilege to introduce our guest speaker this morning. He was born in Kincardine, went to school there. He told me he went to three elementary schools in Kincardine. I wonder if there was a discipline problem. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) he went to high school in Kincardine and then went on to Eastern Bible College in Peterborough. When he graduated from there, he went to Oakville to serve a church. Following that, he was off to South Africa for a year where he was on a mission trip. He came back to northern Ontario and finally, in 1996, came to Kincardine where he served at um, the Pentecostal Church. He and his wife have three girls, and he's raising them on Craig Boulevard. Just think, (laughs) Craig. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, he retired. Retired in 2016 and is now employed selling uh, or leasing cars in Kincardine. I know that we will be blessed by what he says today because his message will be based on God's word. And I know that it will be challenging and inspiring, and I hope it encourages us to dig deeper into what God has to say to us. I now want to welcome to Chelmers Church Ray Lewinstra
1: thank you just want to uh, yeah say at the moment I'm a used car salesman and I will resist I will resist using this opportunity (laughs) to sell you something that you would like to drive but uh, I am grateful to be here and I really enjoy And I've grown to admire and love your your pastor, Pastor Brian, and his wife, Heather. And Liberty and I have a special relationship as well. Whenever I see her, she comes, runs, and comes and gives me a hug. She's a really a wonderful child. So I I trust that Brian and Heather are having a great time. I know what it is as a pastor to have a Sunday away and not have the pressure of being on the bubble to preach a message. And so when he asked me if I would fill in for him, I was more than happy to say yes to that. And the text we're going to be sharing this morning is along in the series that you've begun, that Brian began, and it's in Colossians chapter 2. And I'm going to be reading to you from Colossians 2, 16 to 23. And then, uh, yeah, we'll explicate the text and talk about what it means to us in the here and now. So this is Paul's letter to the Colossae. I'm sure Brian has given you a, a proper introduction to Paul's letter. And so I won't spend a lot of time there. So let's just get right into it. Jump right into it. And talk about what Paul, read what Paul says here. And then talk about what the implications are. Paul says in the beginning of verse 16, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality to come and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels saying they have visions about these things. Their sinful minds "...have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for He holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and He has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch... Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, when you read that text, and perhaps you've read it before and read it many times, what Paul is saying here is actually pretty radical stuff. When we start at verse 16, he says, so, so what? What does Paul say before that? He talks about, and I think your pastor probably talked about it last week. He talks about how Christ has led all evil and all our sins and and nailed them to the cross and, and triumphed over all of our sinfulness. And as a result of what Jesus did on the cross, Paul says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or not holding certain holy days or new moon ceremonies, whatever. What Paul is talking about here is quite, quite radical indeed. And sometimes this is not the kind of stuff that I learned in Sunday school. And it's not the stuff that we usually teach in Sunday school because it is really quite subversive. Because Paul is teaching that religious practices are really not all that helpful. And why is it? Well, it's right there in the text. It's possible, Paul says, to be religious and yet be disconnected from Christ. See, so he says their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ. Do you know it's possible to pray twice a day? to read your Bible every day, to go to church every Sunday, to give and tie the tenth of all that you have, and still be disconnected from Christ. In fact, those things in themselves can lead you further from Christ than toward Christ. And I'll talk about how that happens in a moment. The other thing that Paul says about religious Practices, And I'm going to define these terms in a moment because it it is maybe a little bit shocking to some. But the other thing he says about religious practices is they become burdensome. In verse 20, we read it there. He says, Christ died and has set you free. Why? Because religion is very burdensome. In religion, you're told you're inadequate and you need to do more and you must take on more and over and over again the the you know what you should do and what you ought to do it's piled on and many people really struggle with the burden of religion and as a result they say it. they say i'm not going to have anything to do with religion understandable so paul says the rules of the world don't handle don't taste don't touch such rules are human Teachings, And then at the very end there in verse 23 at the end he says they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Isn't that interesting? All these practices that one can partake in can actually not help us grow. That's what Paul is saying here. It doesn't help us deal with our evil desires in our hearts. So let's dig a little deeper below the surface here and understand what Paul is saying, and really what he is saying is a repeat of what we see portrayed by Jesus in the Gospels. You see, Paul recognized and taught through his letters to the churches that Jesus came to tear down religion as the foundation of people's connection with God and replace it, not with another religion, but with himself. Jesus came to replace religion, not with another religion, but with himself. In Jesus, God came to us, In our own context, he came to us in flesh so that we could understand what God was like. And he came to us so that we could connect directly with God. And this is what we see at both ends of the Bible, don't we? In the beginning, before sin entered the world, we see that mankind walked with God. And there was a harmonious relationship that mankind enjoyed with God. And then if you fast forward to the end of the Bible, you read again in Revelation what is going on again. People are living in harmonious relationship with God, enjoying God, enjoying Him, and enjoying one another. And this is the crux of what God desires for every human being. God that made you, God made every human being... In order that that person may enjoy him and enjoy a relationship with him. And so let me just define some terms, some questions and answers. Does this mean religion? Pastor, are you saying that religion is bad? We might as well just get up out of the pew and leave right now. All right? Let's define our terms. It's important to define our terms. The word religion is used today colloquially like commonly, to define the, the regulations, the rituals, and routines that people use to achieve their spiritual end goal. So, you know what? It's the three R's, right? Regulations, rituals, routines. It's the things that people do to kind of achieve their spiritual end goal, whatever that may be. So, am I suggesting that Jesus is saying that rules, rituals, and routines are bad things? No. No. Because these things are possible expressions of our connection to God. But they are, here's the big difference. They are not a means to attain our connection to God. You see the fundamental difference? It's possible to give, to pray, to read the scripture, to go to church, to do all of these things... And it can be an expression of your connection to God. But when they become a means to attain our connection to God, it becomes a problem. Here's the difference. Do I kiss my wife to earn her love? Oh, I better go and give her a hug because, boy, if I don't give her a hug, you know, I, I need to earn her love. Do I, do I buy her flowers to earn her love? Or do I buy her flowers and kiss my wife to express the love that we already share together? Big difference, isn't there? One can represent the insecurity of religion. The other represents the intimacy of relationship and faith. You see, God wants us to live good lives. But that life is to flow out of gratitude for the life that God has already given us. Not an attempt to be good enough to earn that life. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's what Jesus practiced when he was on earth. There are far too many people attempting to live for God out of fear. And it's no joke, it's no surprise to find that there are so many people both within the church and without of the church who think that the Christian faith is all about being good in order to receive your acceptance from God. And that is not the gospel message. That is not what Jesus taught. It's not what Paul taught. There are far too many people attempting to live for God out of fear. What kind of husband would I be if I only treated my wife well because I was afraid that she might leave me and divorce me? What kind of son would I be if I only treated my father well because I wanted to get his inheritance? Selfish would be the answer. What I really should do is love them because they are precious to me and have won my heart. And this is what Paul expresses in his other, one of his other letters. He makes it really plain in, F, in his letter to the church in Ephesus when he says in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10. He said, God saved you by His special favor when you believed. Some would, by His grace. And you can't take credit for this. It is the gift of God. Salvation, here he is. He's saying it plain here. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Notice what he's saying. If you're doing your good things to earn your salvation from God, you're missing it. But God indeed has made us and created us to do good things, but not in order to earn his favor. God gives it all up front. Salvation's not a reward for something we have done salvation is the result of something that Christ has done that's what it says in the previous verses verses in Colossians it's Christ who nailed our sins to the cross it is Christ who defeated the powers of sin within us God gives it all up front and what we do is just respond to what he's given If you have any doubts about Jesus' intention to undo and dismantle religious rules, there are many. I'll, get, I'll just give you two illustrations because, well, Pastor Brian told me I had till about quarter after 11, but I, I will spare you, all right? A mercy upon you. In Matthew chapter 8, I won't read the passage. You can look it up yourself if you wish. A leopard comes to Jesus. And the leper cries out to Jesus and says, Jesus, have mercy upon me. And Jesus does something that he didn't need to do. But he does something very, very disturbing to the religious people of his time. Jesus responds to that leper And as you know, the pericope, he heals that leper. But it's how he healed that leper that was scandalous to the religious people of his time. Because not only does Jesus heal him, Jesus reaches out and he touches him. Now let me ask you this. If you know your Bible a little bit, you know that there is an explicit rule in the Torah The Torah was the holy, holy part of the Hebrew Bible. And the people of Israel, especially at Jesus' time, were very concerned about the Torah and the laws of the Torah. So concerned about the laws of the Torah that they would memorize them all and then they'd add more to them just so that they would never break any of those rules. And in Leviticus chapter 13, it talks about how a leper was to be treated. And a leper was not to be touched. And here comes Jesus. And he knows. He knows Leviticus chapter 13. He's the Son of God. And Jesus deliberately could... Let me ask you. Do you think Jesus could have healed that leper without touching him? Absolutely. So the question becomes, why did Jesus touch that leper? He didn't have to. He could have just said the word easily. It would have been done. But he reaches out and touches him. You see, Jesus was more revolutionary than we like to portray him in Sunday school. And he came to dismantle religion as a means to establishing our relationship with God. He came to dismantle that and replace it with himself. And so he deliberately, on a number of occasions, broke the so-called Sabbath law. He broke Many of the rules that the religious elites had, and remember, Jesus had tremendous conflict with not the people who were down and out and the prostitutes and the the criminals and the people who were so-called on the fringes of society. He welcomed them in and they welcomed him. They were attracted to him. But he had tremendous conflict with those who were considered themselves righteous and religious And it was a tremendous battle. And it ultimately was part of the reason he was nailed to the cross, as you know. So, you know what? Again, I I offer these examples to, to help and encourage you to understand and read the New Testament again. So that you will see what is going on here. Consider as well. Right, here's another example. And, and because I'm saying something that may be a little bit controversial, I think you need more and more examples, more and more proof of what I'm saying is not just, you know, Pastor Ray's little rant to, on something that isn't that significant. This is significant. Just think of what we, I, I know you folks here, you probably celebrate communion, right? Once a month or so, all right? Now I want you to think for a moment. What Jesus did when he instituted communion with his followers. The cedar or the Passover was a celebration of the release of the Israelites from bondage to slavery to the Egyptians. It is in this context of miraculous deliverance and freedom that Jesus refers to the bread. What does he call the bread? You know, right? My body, this Is my body which is broken for you. Right? I've done, I've said that so many times. Right? And then what does he call the wine? My blood. Take. Drink it. Now many of us are so familiar with this ritual that we miss the radical and shocking nature of what Jesus was asking his followers. How can How can I say that communion is shocking? Never mind how strange it must have seemed to his followers to mime the consumption of his corpse, his body. There is one thing that you should never ask a group of young Jewish men to do. And that is to drink blood. Again, in Leviticus chapter 17. Let me just read that one for you. The Bible says in verse 10, And I will turn against anyone, whether an Israelite or a foreigner living among you, who eats or drinks blood in any form. I will cut off such a person from the community. There's not a lot of wiggle room there, is there? (laughs) And here Jesus comes, and he says, This is is my blood which is spilled for you take it and drink of it and this I'm sure when those disciples were sitting there shocked them and made them think what why what he's asking us to drink blood He is forcing his disciples to make a choice. Now, we know it's wine and not blood, but he's calling it blood, and they just can't add. Here's what Jesus is doing, and this is why I believe he does this. You see, he didn't want his disciples to just add him to all their other religious things. And what he does is forces them to either embrace Him or continue in their most cherished and familiar ways. He's forcing them to make a decision to be fully committed to Him or stay with their old ways of doing things. And that's what Jesus does with us. I can imagine. Can you imagine the disciples sitting there in that First Communion table? I can imagine Thomas looking over at John and wondering, "Okay, buddy, are you going to drink it? I don't know if I'm going to drink it. Okay, he's watching. Who's got to go first? Right? The question must have flooded their mind. Do we stay or do we leave in protest? And I, I would remind you again, if you don't think this is, you know, if I'm representing this well, remember there was a time when Jesus Had a whole flood of followers. And they were following. He was famous. And then he gets up and he says, you know what? If you don't eat my body or drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And do you know what happened? A ton of people laughed. They're like, this guy's out of his cotton-picking mind. Right? He's gone crazy. Jesus forces us To commit ourselves fully to him. To leave our most, most familiar and comfortable religious ways. And be committed to him. Are they willing? Are we willing? To follow Jesus all the way out of the safety zone of religion? You see, religion isn't necessarily bad. But it can be a very comfortable place to be because when we serve god in a religious way right if we serve if we stay in religion in the sense that we're we're just doing our part so that god will accept us right it's it's all in our control and it leads to two really terrible things one religion leads to a sense of superiority where if you're really good at the religious rituals, and the disciplines, and the not doing this, and the doing that, and all the other rules, if you're good at rule keeping, right? If you're good at ritual keeping, you can really start to say, well, yeah. You start to look at the other person who's uh, maybe not as uh, religious as you are, right? And you start to think, huh, your life would be a lot better if you uh, just uh, had a little more discipline like I do, right? That was the problem that Jesus had with so many of the religious people. The other problem with religion, right, is is that the sense of defeat. Oh, I'm terrible. I can't do it. Right. I keep failing. Right. And the self-condemnation. And so we have the religion leads to both problems. The cross. Jesus leads to a resolution of both. Because in the cross, what do we see? We see that Christ was nailed to the cross for our sins. That's incredibly humbling. And yet, at the same time, he gave himself for you and for me. That's incredibly affirming. The cross alone can heal us from the bondage of religiosity. The cross alone can free us so that we become free to love God and to love Jesus and follow him. And the the burden, Jesus says, is not heavy. Why? Because it flows from the depth of our being and our deep love and relationship with him. And you know what? Some of you say, well, you know what, Pastor? And I know this is true, too. I, I, I struggle. I don't know if I love God all that much. You know what? You will never love God. You will never love Him the way you can have a love for Him unless you know how deeply He first loved you. And where was that expressed again? On the cross, he loved you so deeply that he would give himself for you so that you could be his son, his daughter, his child. And when you experience the power of Christ on the cross, when you know that he died for you, I mean, you're hopeless other than to respond with love for him. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. Jesus asks us today, will you follow him? Will you even follow him out of the safety zone of all the rituals and rules and regulations that you've come Will you follow him? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us so deeply. That you are willing to give yourself on our behalf. And we pray that we might experience that love each and every day. That at the dawning of the morning, when the sun is rising, that when we see that we would know your utter faithfulness and we would be grateful for your utter goodness to us and your deep love for us each day would fill our hearts and minds and cause us to love you in return. And not only that, but to love one another even as you have loved us. Father, we need your help. We need your power for that to become a reality. And so we ask, O oh God, fill our hearts, reveal it to us by your Spirit, that we may walk not in fear. Not in an attempt to make ourselves right before you. Not in an effort to earn our place with you. But to live out of gratitude for what we know you have done. Help us, Lord, not to be focused on our performance. But help us to focus on your performance on our behalf. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.